0: True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Tiso Blackstar Group, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live, and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Tiso Blackstar Group or its affiliates. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to our Spotlight Minisode, in which we discuss true crime cases that are in the media at the moment. On the 25th of November, the annual commemoration of 16 days of activism for No Violence Against Women and Children began. It ends on the 10th of December. So I thought that I'd dedicate this Minisode to cases that highlight the need for activism around this issue. In an article published on Eyewitness News on the 25th of November, Major General Bofana Linda, who is the head of the police's family violence, child protection and sexual offences unit, stated that according to the latest statistics, crimes against women and children increased in six of our provinces in the year ending March 2019. He also requested that the community come forward with leads, eyewitness testimony, and other information that related to open cases in order to help the police close them. I think that this highlights an important point. We all get irate and horrified by the cases we see in the media involving the abuse of women and children, but how many of us would be willing to actually say something when we know it's happening? How Many of us would be willing to report our own family members for abusing their spouses and children. I use a gender neutral reference there because I'm well aware that women can be abusers too. One of the cases highlighted in this article is that of the murder of Mandy Silver. Mandy was 37 years old when she was found dead in her Randburg home in 2015. The following is an audio clip from news coverage recently done by Mia Lindeke of Eyewitness News. Mandy Silva suffered blunt force trauma to her body, burns and pressure to her neck, which led to her death. More than four years later, there's still no breakthrough in this case. On the day of a vicious attack, police confirmed there was no one else in her house except her husband and son. Silva's mother, Eileen Brothy, says she had confided in her about being in an abusive relationship. About three weeks before her death occurred, she had sent me a message to say, Mum, the next time you see me, it will be in the morgue. The Facebook page set up called Fighting for Mandy states that the only suspect in Mandy's murder has yet to be arrested. Mandy's family has been waiting for four years for justice. There is a photograph of Mandy's autopsy report on the Facebook page, which lists her causes of death. Mandy was essentially brutally beaten, tortured, and then strangled to death, all while her four-year-old son was in the same house. There is an open case but Mandy's family say that they have not been made aware that the police are any closer to making an arrest than they were four years ago. Thankfully, hard-hitting journalists like Mia Lindike are now aware of the case after Mandy's family contacted her. Sometimes awareness is all it takes for someone to say, you know what, four years ago I knew something that I thought wasn't important. Maybe I should tell someone now. Mandy deserves justice. Her family deserves justice. A four-year-old boy, who no longer has a mother, deserves to grow up knowing that at the very least, his mother's killer is in jail. Please go and like the Facebook page, Fighting for Mandy, and as I always ask in cases like this, please start the conversation with others. No piece of information is too small. It may just be the last piece of the puzzle. Another GBV case, that of the rape and murder of Jessie Hess and the murder of her grandfather, Charles Latakhan, recently had a positive update in that two people have been arrested in connection with the rape and murders. Just when we thought that the loss of this 19-year-old theology student and her loving grandfather could not get any worse, it did. Police announced that the main suspect in the case is related to Jesse. 31-year-old David van Boeven was arrested in Stray spy after going on the run when he caught wind that police were looking for him. Van Boeven is a second cousin to Jesse on her mother's side, and he is a hardened criminal. In fact, police were also looking to arrest him for another rape he committed in the week before he was arrested, a 16-year-old girl who was raped in Hanover Park. At the time that Jessie and Chris's bodies were found, it was believed that at least one of the victims must have known their attacker because there had been no sign of forced entry. Jessie's aunt stated in the media after Van Boeven's arrest that for most of Jessie's life, Van Boeven had been in jail. He was allegedly imprisoned in 2007 for having raped another Unnamed relative. He was released on parole in December 2018. Jesse's aunt said that Jesse was terrified of Van Boerven. I haven't been able to find out how much time Van Boerven was originally sentenced to, but it must have been a significant sentence if he served 12 years before being released on parole. And honestly, without knowing the details of the crime, it sounds as though it warranted a hefty sentence. It takes a special kind of evil to, at 19 years old, rape one of your own family members. I look forward to seeing Van Boven and his accomplice put behind bars for the rest of their lives. They deserve no less. Rob Packham, who was found guilty of viciously murdering his wife Jill, placing her body in the boots of her vehicle and then setting it alight, continues on his quest to appeal his sentence. Packham was found to have mentally abused his wife, Joel, for many years, and the prosecution's case in court was that he had been having an extramarital affair and no longer wanted to be married to Joel. Instead of divorcing her, he killed her. He was sentenced to 22 years in prison. Since his sentencing, Packham has attempted to exercise his right to appeal to every judicial body he can find. The main basis of his appeal is that the two eyewitnesses who testified to having seen Packham driving away from Joel's burning vehicle were presented with a photo lineup which he feels was unreliable. I've been collecting information on this case and I'll definitely be covering it in a full podcast episode at some stage. Another convicted wife killer, Jason Rhoda, who was sentenced to 18 years behind bars for killing his wife Susan at Speer Wine Estate in July 2016, is also attempting to appeal his sentence. The real estate mogul was also involved in an affair when he murdered his wife and tried to make it look like she'd committed suicide by hanging herself. In an interesting twist, Rhoda's mistress, Jolene Altusky has been charged with one count of contempt of court, or an alternate charge, of defamation against Judge Khayat Klope, who handed down the sentence to Rhoda. This comes after Altuski made statements on social media that defamed the judge, as well as investigators in the case, accusing them of targeting Rhoda because he is a, quote, rich white man, end quote and claiming that the judge and police officers were corrupt and accepted bribes. Since she was charged, she's released a public statement, unequivocally apologising for her statements, saying that she'd been under huge pressure during the trial and didn't realise that her statements would be so widely spread on social media and receive such a huge amount of attention. Altuski has been charged in the High Court which is apparently very strange for matters of this nature, as defamation or contempt would usually fall under the auspices of the lower courts. This is just my opinion, but I think perhaps this woman is being made an example of. We recently saw the husband of Heidi Skippers, who tragically passed away with her two young children, send a cease and desist letter through his lawyer to the admins of a Facebook page he felt was defaming him. The admin of the Facebook page removed all of the posts and issued an apology. In the Rhoda case, it could also be because he's attempting to appeal, and the context of the allegations made by Alterski may affect that appeal. This is something that I think we all need to be really aware of, especially since a lot of us chat about cases on True Crime South Africa's Facebook page. There's a very fine line between discussing the facts of a case and making implications of a person's guilt. Well, actually, the line is possibly not that fine, but it's certainly there. In-depth discussions of cases on social media should really only be around cases where a person has been found guilty of a charge. Then there's very little chance of defaming someone because a court of law has agreed that person is guilty. In new, current, or unsolved cases, it becomes a lot easier to say something you shouldn't. Certainly, there is absolutely nothing wrong with stating the facts that have been reported in the media. But let's not let that morph into people making accusations based on their opinion. I don't just say that because of the risk of defamation charges, it could also impact the case. Social media reports are coming up more and more in the defense of accused people. Eyewitness testimonies can be thrown out if an accused's photo was circulating on social media accusing them of a crime. The question becomes, well, did you really see them do it? Or did you see their face on social media and assume that it was one and the same person? Witness testimony can also be impacted when a sharp defense attorney questions how much of a witness's recollection is fact, and how much is what they heard or read somewhere else. And honestly, the human memory is a funny thing. Sometimes it's actually difficult to know whether you remember something or you actually heard it somewhere else. I won't let anything be posted on our Facebook page or share anything, even on my personal profile, that I can't back up in some way. News articles from trustworthy sources are fine, but you must realize that anyone can set up a website and call it a news site. Just because it looks like an official article doesn't mean it is. I am even weary of sharing missing person posts when there's no SAPS case number because you never know what is behind that post. If I was a non-custodial parent who abused my spouse and children and they were on the run from me, it would be so easy to put together a post on Facebook and say, hey guys, my kids are missing, please help me find them. And then people share it because they know no better and someone pops a message into my inbox with their location. It's as easy as that. All I'm saying is, let's think before we share or comment. It could save a life. The Rhoda case is another one I'll definitely be doing a full episode on soon. I'd also like to chat about another issue that's recently come up in the news, which is appropriate to this period of activism. And that's the podcast released by Dion Wiggert and the News Twenty Four team called "My Only Story." In this podcast, Dion Wiggert starts off by revealing that he was raped when he was seventeen years old by a man he refers to initially as Jimmy. Dion is attempting to find other victims of this man, who frighteningly was a teacher for many years. So far. 16 men have come forward to state that they too were raped or sexually abused by this man. With this amount of evidence at hand, Dion was able to publicly release the name of his rapist, Willem Breitenbach. Interestingly, before Dion even mentioned Breitenbach's name on the podcast, long before any more victims came forward, Breitenbach fled for the hills. He closed his business forcing 31 staff members to resign. He closed all of his social media accounts and shut down his phone. And let me make this clear once again, this was before anyone had said his name. Breitenbach was eventually tracked down at his mother's house in Mossel Bay and it would emerge that he had attempted to commit suicide the week before. A police case has been opened and is being investigated. I started listening to Dion's podcast at the same time as I was watching a documentary series on Netflix called The Keepers. The Keepers follows the story of sexual abuse of children in the Catholic Church, and in the specific case followed in the documentary, it focuses on one specific priest who eventually had hundreds of sexual abuse claims against him. In the documentary, the priest is linked to the murder of a nun who was allegedly going to expose him. Watching that documentary and listening to Dion's podcast, I suddenly felt very angry on behalf of these survivors. For the most part, I'm angry because these predators could have been stopped but they belong to organisations who felt it better to transfer these people elsewhere than hand them over to the police. This doesn't only happen in churches and schools. Anywhere where there is a person in a position of power who has control over the lives of others, there is a risk that things like this could happen. This is just my opinion, but I think that if it's proven that someone knowingly failed to act when they were made aware of the abuse of a child, they should be seen as complicit to the crime. Sadly, it doesn't just happen in organisations either. It happens in families too. For whatever reason, so many families hide their abusers within their bosom. We're not going to send Uncle Jimmy to jail where he belongs, but just don't let him be around the children anymore. But what about everyone else's children? What about your own children, who have to grow up seeing their abuser every Christmas because their family didn't want the trouble of charging him? What does that tell them about the crime that was done to them? We've got to start talking about child sexual abuse, and we have to stop re-victimizing the victims and protecting the predators. I don't know Dion Wiggert, but I'm so proud of him for doing what he did. It's not strange for a victim of rape or abuse to only speak about the act many years later. And thankfully, in South Africa, sexual abuse is not a prescribed crime. So there's no statute of limitations like in America, where survivors only have a certain number of years to report the crime. Your mind protects you from trauma. And Dion described an awakening to the truth triggered by his father's death, very similar to some of the survivors in The Keepers who pushed their pain down for decades until eventually something clicked and they were able to talk about it. The amount of damage that is done to a person's psyche during the years of pushing that down, though, is immeasurable. I truly hope that Willem Breitenbach is arrested before he makes another attempt at suicide and that he spends the rest of his life in prison. I'd like to introduce you to two new podcasts today. The first is a Times Live podcast called Cargumentative for the petrol heads out there. Tune in to Cargumentative every Monday morning on Times Live Motoring. You can join myself, Thomas Faulkner, and my regular gang of automotive misfits as we discuss motoring news, views, and of course, have a cargument or two. That's Cargumentative, only on Times Live Motoring. The second podcast I'd like to introduce you to is a true crime podcast called Brew Crime. The pod is a mix between true crime and discussions around craft beer. Here's the promo. This is Brewcrime, a craft beer and true crime podcast. I'm Mike. I'm Beck. And I'm Nina. And we're your hosts. We pair a true crime story with a craft beer that Nina will probably hate. Yeah, probably. (laughs) Whatever. You can find our show on all your favorite podcast apps. And if you can't find it, contact us and we'll try and change that. We can be found at brewcrime.com or on all social media platforms at Brewcrime. As well, you can find us on our Facebook group at Brewcrime the Group. Join us as we discuss the horrible crimes that surround us and try not to giggle. If you're stocking up on reading material for the December holidays, head on over to our website and check out our True Crime Books page. True Crime South Africa is a loot affiliate, so if you purchase a book through a link on that page, you're helping to support the show. Also, I recently announced on social media that True Crime South Africa now has its own WhatsApp line for audio messages from our listeners. If you have something you'd like to share about an episode or the show in general, or if you'd just like to give a shout-out to your fellow True Crime South Africans, send a voice recording or in-app voice note to 060 758 double nine five zero, and I'll play it in our upcoming episodes. That number again is zero six zero seven five eight double nine five zero. I'll be back next Friday with a full case episode. It's an unsolved one this time. Until then, please remember to subscribe to us on the app you're using to listen, and follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. As always, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.